Hello and welcome to the first ever, ever lifting podcast. Damn, we're making history, man. Before I bring my first guest in, I want to give you a little bit of a background on what we're about to talk about, which is the conjugate system. Now, there are many people saying that the conjugate system is this and the conjugate system is that. Well, the conjugate system we're going to talk about is the one more or less created by Louis Simmons at Westside Barbell. I would just want to run down some basics of the system so you understand what me and my esteemed guest will be talking about if you are not familiar with Westside Barbell or the conjugate system. So a typical training week might look like this. You do Two max effort days, one for upper body and one for lower body. Now, what does max effort mean? It means you take a max single. For the lower body will be something that has carryover to the squat or uh, to the deadlift. For a power lifter. If you're an athlete, it might be something different. But it's an exercise for the lower body that you take to a one rep max. Now, it's the same for the upper body. Uh, on a separate day, the upper body max effort day. That's where you uh, take an upper body exercise, and uh, for power lifters, of course, that's a bench press. Well, here's a little twist to it. It's not recommended to actually do the squat, deadlift, or bench press. I know that sounds ass backwards, but hey, that's the system. Instead, you might do a variation. So let's say you're doing a box squat, or you're doing a squat with a safety bar, or you're doing a heavy good morning. You might do a deadlift from pins, or from blocks, or from a deficit. You might do a a close grip bench press, an incline bench press. There are all these variations that you can use, and the whole point is finding uh, what's right for you. Now... After the max effort exercise, that's where the real work starts, so to speak. That's where all the volume comes in. That's where you pick exercises that attacks your weaknesses and help build up your main lifts. Now, we'll go into this in great detail in the podcast, so I don't want to dwell too much on about it. Just you do all the other exercises there. Now, there are two other days as well the dynamic effort method days. There's one, again, for uh, the lower body and one for the upper body. Now here the goal isn't to lift the maximal weight. Here the goal is to um, move a weight as fast as possible. Hence the term dynamic effort. The percentages on what weight to use varies the general recommendation uh, by Louis is to do uh, weights that are 75% the first week, next week you do 80%, and the third week you do 85%. Now, here's the trick. After the third week, you actually go back to 75% and build up again, but you switch exercise. Again, you're not doing the squat or the deadlift or the bench. Now, you might do a front squat for three weeks, and after that, you might switch it to a searcher squat. So every three weeks you change something, okay? And you still stay away from the main lifts. That's absolute key in this method. You have to understand that. You don't do the main lifts in training, generally speaking. 
So on the dynamic days, as I said, you want to move the weight as fast as possible. You should take short rest periods and you will do a lot more volume. You might do uh, 10 sets of two, 12 sets of two, eight sets of three, five sets of five. All this is detailed in uh, articles and uh, also videos that I will link. Um, if you find this podcast somewhere else than on my website, then go to uh, everlifting.com and I will have a whole bunch of links there uh, for you to catch up on everything. But now it's time for the first ever guest on the Everlifting podcast. Enjoy. So, my guest today, he's a former elite powerlifter who trained at Westside Barbell for several years. He's a mega business owner and arguably the most generous guy in the industry. The PR chasing, internet guru crushing and doing it with a smile, the too awesome to be censored, Dave Tate. Ah, thank you for that. I like that. <laughs> I like that. How are you doing, Dave? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So, as I mentioned here in the beginning, you trained at Westside for a bunch of years. And what I really want to talk to you about is uh, the conjugate system. Both uh, what you did at Westside and maybe how you have modified it uh, since. Okay. When you came to Westside, uh, how did your training look back then? Okay. Before I came to Westside, I was... Um let me see, I got the West Side around 1990, 91-ish, and I first started competing in powerlifting in 83. So before coming to West Side, I was using more of a linear-based periodization, and then that, I had some struggles with that, trying to figure out how to progress past a certain point, so I used a lot of non-linear-based models, you know, undulating periodization, different type of block periodization. Sure. And, you know, basically whatever I could to be able to move forward. And I just got to a point where it was, it, it just wasn't happening and I was getting beat down more and more. When I finally came to train with Louie, you know, there, there was a time period, it wasn't very long, but a little under a year where I kind of thought everything he was doing was bullshit. Yeah. So I, I was doing my own stuff and going nowhere. And I, I remember having a conversation with him where... It was more or less me being, you know, the the asshole that I was at the time saying, well, I'll come train in the morning with you and I'll do what you tell me to do. But when I fuck up, it's going to be on you. It's not going to be on me. <laughs> and um, but then over the next year, I put 150 pounds on my total. So when I first came to Westside and we're speaking about, I like to kind of distinguish there that there is a difference between concurrent conjugate and Westside. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of people throw around the word conjugate, like the conjugate method and so forth. And I think that that kind of gets confused with the West Side method, even though, you know, to play devil's advocate, I do think Louie could actually own the copyright for conjugate method because nobody was really using it until he was. But no. th there is a difference between a lot of what I see today and West Side method of training. You know, so there's 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 a lot of conjugate that I don't think is West Side. So how would you uh, differentiate between the two then? Um, well, the West Side method is basically the standard stuff that I've been putting out for years. Louis made a lot of adaptations to that. 
and he's got a lot of you know offshoot variations on how he trains athletes but I would I would just sum it up very easily by saying it's some type of integration between the dynamic effort method, repetition method, max effort method, you know, and using special exercises to bring up weak points. Now, some of the things I have an article that I put out a few years ago it was something along the lines of 100 things that I saw change, you know, while I was at Westside. Yes. You know, yes. When I first came to Westside, we didn't have a monolift, for instance. And there was not multi-fight gear. And the way that all of our training was done, he did want us to train in briefs, single wide briefs, just for the dynamic squat work because it was a lot wider stance and we were squatting off a 14-inch box. And everything else was done with raw, really. I mean, even on max effort work, he didn't want us wearing a belt unless it was the very last set. And even on that case, if you grabbed a belt, you were kind of belittled a little bit for, you know, well, for, for being a puss, you know, and because, you know, the, the stronger athletes, the athlete that's going to win. So, and so that was one big change is, you know, as I remember squatting with him and uh, it, it sucked because, you know, his jack height for the squat stands was six inches lower than what I would need it at, but I had to take it out on his, because, no. you know, the, we, the dynamic work was fast. You know, there was no longer than 45 seconds between sets. So there wasn't time to adjust, you know, the stand. And the shorter guy always got, you know, it's, it's like he couldn't get up on his toes. So I'm, my back's getting crushed doing a good morning, just getting the shit out, you know, where he's yeah. fresh. We were also training on four-week waves instead of three-weeks waves, which we progressed to over a period of time. Now, I can't comment on anything that they've done since 2005. I, I no. haven't been in there, but so I did see that change. I saw the the integration of board press boards. We did not have those when I first got there. Most of the bench max effort work was floor press, pin press, and then maybe a year after I got there, there was board presses, but close grip incline press stuff like that. There were no bands, there were no chains. I was there for I think five years before bands and chains even became anything that we were trying to implement. You know, so it was just, you know, it, it makes me laugh sometimes when people say, you know, how do I do conjugate method if I don't have specialty bars and bands and chains? And I think, you know, it, you do it the same way I did it for five fucking years. Yeah. You know, uh, Louis, Louis has been talking a lot about that stuff on his podcast as well. And to the listeners out there, if you haven't checked out Louis' podcast, you definitely should because they're really good. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to... and. I do think there's definitely values to bands and chains, but if you really want to follow the same path that, say, that I did, well, then you need to do just basic four-week conjugate training waves with basic max effort exercises, probably no more than eight, for about three to four years. And then at that point in time, you can start using chain, but then about the five-year mark, then you can start using bands. And that's going to follow the same trajectory that we used. But over the period of time that I was there, which was from 90 till, say, 2005, I call it it's when Louis' gym was on Demers Road. I see that looking back now at Westside as being a very, very experimental phase for Louis. You know, he, he had a bunch of guys in a small gym that were willing to do whatever it takes. And, I mean, we would run our head into a wall if it was going to make us stronger. We were going to do it. We'd do anything. 
Um, so he had guys that were uh, kind of all over the map as far as genetic potential, but had a work ethic that was unparalleled. So it wasn't until my last few years there that we started to get in people that I felt were more genetically inclined that didn't have to necessarily do the same things or work as hard. And if they did, it probably would have made them go backwards where, you know, by the time, by the time that came around, then we, we, I say we, but Louie, and I say we, because Louie always listened to us. Yeah. You know, he was always learning from us. So when I say we, I'm not talking like, you know, Louie and I sat down and figured this shit out. Um, it, it's, he was the one aspect about Louis Simmons that I think a lot of people miss is when I was there and I assume it continues today, it's an assumption, but I assume it does. Mm. You know, it was, it was, he taught us how to train other people. So when somebody else was, everything that I've learned on how to coach a, coach a lift came from him. And it was because he's saying, hey, look, you see what Chuck's doing right there. All right, well, here's how we got to fix that. It's a technical problem. So we got to work on this. So we got to cue this. But it's also a physical issue and it needs to be addressed with these special exercises. So when you're around that consistently over and over, year after year after year, you start picking up on it. So then you start seeing it. So now when somebody's doing a set of squats, it's not just Louie's eyes that are watching it. Hell, he didn't even have to be there. There were eight, everyone else. Yeah. yeah, it's eight sets of eyes all looking at this one squat, not looking for what's good about it. Everybody's looking for whatever they can find that's fucked up about it, you know, to be able to. And so it was instilled in us that, you know, it was my job to make whoever I was training with better than me. And then when they got better than me, it was their job to make me better than them. And that was a skill set and a coaching skill set that Louie had, which I think goes largely unnoticed because he was an asshole. I mean, it's, you got to keep in mind who he was working with and, you know, what type of people he's working with. He, he found whatever he could use to be able to make you be better and to make you be able to help other people become better. And a lot of times that resulted in people who would leave, you know, even if they left because of retirement, really not liking the guy because they oh. never really saw, they tried, they saw him as a training partner or they saw him as a friend where the reality of the situation is he was a coach that simply that, you know, nothing else. Cause his job in his mind is to make the strongest lifters he can at Westside. Once you leave, you're dead to him, you know, and it's not a bad thing. You know, you take an NFL coach, it's probably the same situation. They have to spend all their time, focus, and energy on who's right in front of them at the current moment. They don't have to worry about somebody who's, you know, come through in three years, you know, post-Westside. They don't sure. They don't give a fuck about them. You know, they give a fuck. Sure. And I, I, I was probably closer to Louie than most other lifters that have gone through there. There's probably a handful of us that you know i did the seminars with him I, I went with him on all the consulting contracts that he had at the time and we spoke training a lot you know so and i that's my background so i don't want to say i had a lot to offer him you know because i really didn't but the more i got to know and understand and research the conjugate method and where he got all the information from that i saw you know the thing with louis is just because he shows you something he's not going to ever show you everything 
So, you know, I can sit here and say everything I learned, you know, that is a value I learned from Louis Simmons, but I can't tell you how much he actually gave me. No, you no. Know, he gave me 20%, 10%, 80%, 90%. I don't know, but I know when I was there, he was not working with athletes outside of powerlifters. He would consult with coaches. And I would hear him and listen to him speak with these coaches, and it was, it was unbelievable to me, you know, the, the knowledge and the mindset that he had with these coaches that, you know, I was trying to get him back then to write about that because powerlifting is such a small market. It's sure. a very, very small niche market. And he didn't want to do it. And I'm like, God damn, you know, it's, he didn't want to do it because he thought, all, he thought that all coaches were just dumb as fuck. You know, so why bother if they're never going to understand because they're just stupid as fuck? Yeah. yeah. And, and that he could he could communicate with, you know, another coach or another power lifter. And at least they have a basis, you know, to be able to work from. And the, unfortunately, it was something I was never able to do. AJ was never able to do it. Matt Winning was in there for a very small stretch. He was never able to do it. Tom has. You know, so I give Tom a lot of credit because he's taken Louie and now people can actually see what he really knows. And they, they now they know he doesn't just know how to train multi-fly powerlifters. No, that's let's just get that shit out of the way right away. Because if you just paid a little bit of attention to what Dave just said here about lifting even without a belt, to assume that West Side doesn't work for the raw lifter. I mean, it's bordering on fucking stupid. Of course. Yeah, here, yeah, here's why it's really stupid, right? I can go back and say 10 years I was there, we only, the only time we ever put gear on was in a meet. Now, the gear did get to a point where the carryovers were getting stronger than us. So for me personally, it pissed me off to know that I had a 540 raw bench. I could bench six, 600, 610 with the shirt. And I would be competing against somebody that had maybe a 450 bench on a good day, and they had a 725, 740 bench. So at that point in time, there's a skill set associated with the gear that we weren't learning. So then, you know, that actually complicates the training. It doesn't make it easier because yeah. now now you got to figure out how to how to build in this skill set of gear, which can really only be built if you're at 90% strength or above which isn't all year round, you know, so you got small windows and all the other stuff, but that's not the point I want to make, you know, because people don't know the history and they're not going to care about the history or they're just going to say you're lying about the history. Here's what people extremely overlook in the world of powerlifting right now, multiply powerlifting probably makes up 2% of the total number of lifters who actually compete. Okay. So yeah. it's say in the United States, there's, 40,000 or 30,000 lifters that compete, there might be a thousand multiply, might be, right? Mm -hmm. And then out of those thousand, half of them are going to think Louis full of shit. So you might have a total of 500 multiply power lifters that actually use a West Side method to train with. 500, okay? Yeah everybody's talking about conjugate training and they've been talking about conjugate training for two fucking decades now. So is the big buzz all about 500 lifters or is the big buzz about all the coaches 
that have their rugby teams doing it, that have their football teams doing it, that have their high school teams doing it. When you're looking at the total number of people that actually are using conjugate or West Side training, it's in the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So they're trying to take 500 people instead of looking at the hundreds of thousands of people who are not multi-ply powerlifters. You see what I'm saying? Sure, sure. That, that's what's ludicrous about it. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's freaking insane because the smallest, you can't take the smallest minority of people that use one training system and say that's the entire training system. That's stupid. If that's, yeah. You know, if that's the case, we could say the same thing with, with any, we could say the same thing with linear periodization. Because I'm sure that the other half of multi-ply powerlifters that don't use West Side, they're not using block training. You know, they're just using old school progressive overload linear periodization. So we could draw the same assumption and say, well, that only works for multi-ply powerlifters. Yeah, exactly. And I can tell you from my experience, I don't, I wouldn't say I use this system exactly by any stretch of the imagination. But whenever I work with an athlete from a different sport, I usually train powerlifters or weightlifters. But whenever I train people from other sports, I gravitate towards the concepts uh, that Westside use. Why? Because it makes fucking sense. It's, it, it is. I mean, it's, there's a lot of positives that are very easy to coach. You know, to somebody, you know, any athlete has to learn the ability to strain where let's just take the max effort method. Yeah. You know, it's people need to understand that, yes, it is a maximum effort, but if you're working with an intermediate or a beginner, that maximum effort technique fails before muscular failure. So as soon as you see that their technique becomes a clusterfuck, you're not going to throw 50 pounds more on even if it was easier. You know, they, they've technically failed, you know, so they are done. They reach their maximal threshold because the technique is... You know, whatever the coach sets to be the deviation that they feel is acceptable. For me, it's about a 10% deviation. You know, as soon as the technique gets 90% fucked up, they're done. You know, yeah. and then the more skilled they get because lifting heavier weights and, and not letting it become a total clusterfuck, but being just enough that it starts to be, builds that neuromuscular and muscular coordination to be able to learn the skill of lifting heavy weights. So... So a lot of uh, one mis misnomer with the max effort method is that everybody's working up to this physical max where it's really not. You know, if it's an athlete that I'm working with, it could be a phys physical match or, or, or it, it could be physical if their technique is, you know, good, you know, yeah. and then I don't want any more than nine or four attempts over 90 percent total. Or it could be a technical breakdown where it's like, you know what, you're done. This is you hit it, it's over. Or it could be mental. You know, they're working up and they are just not getting it. You know, they're, they're someplace else all day and it's not, it's not worth it. But all three of those things still teach the athlete how to strain because they need to learn how to strain when their mind's somewhere else. Because the next time their mind is somewhere else, they're going to be a little better than the time that you had them the first time. So, you know, that's, that's where the, that gets all fucked up. Now, on the, the dynamic work, the, the, the benefit that I think everybody overlooks from a standpoint outside of powerlifting, but even powerlifting for that matter, is the first rep matters most. 
especially in powerlifting. The first rep is the only one you're going to do in a competition, right? Yeah. So if, if you have somebody programmed to do, I'll just throw any fictitious number out there, 85% for four, set, four sets of five. Yeah. Well, mental and physical fatigue is going to send it. You know, so out of the four sets of five, the first rep of each one of those sets is probably going to be okay. The second one's probably questionable, but anything after that, it's pretty much reinforcing poor technique. So at the end of that day, you're going to have four first reps and you're going to have four or eight technically efficient reps. All right. That's it. Yeah. All right. Not the 20. Yes. Now, if you have them do 10 sets of two for dynamic work, every repetition is efficient, you know, because it's being coached, fatigue isn't setting in, and there's 10 first reps. So if you compound that over a period of a month or a year, you're going to end up getting five, six hundred percent more first reps, technical reps, practice you know, then somebody's going to get that's using a different training protocol, which focuses more on submaximal training. Yeah, and, and something I see with that when you do like uh, 10 sets of two or 12 sets of two, two or whatever, and with short rest periods is that sometimes the technique actually get better in later sets. It does. It does. And with, um, I really don't work with beginners. I, I did yeah. when I was at Westside, I was a personal trainer. So everybody I trained in the club I was at was Gen Pop, and I still had them do basic West Side conjugate for, even if they didn't touch a weight, they're 42 years old, in awful shape. I still had them train a modified version of that. But there's, for a lot of them, there were 20 sets, 30 sets of two, you know, that was done for dynamic work because they really didn't even possess the ability at that point to produce force. No. You know, not not to the same level of somebody who's been an athlete or been training for a long time. So it's going to take they can take a lot more repetitions before they get the fatigue. That's they're they're going to mentally fatigue before they're going to physically fatigue. So I get a shit ton more technical work. Where if it was a true beginner and you just wanted to have them do sets of fifteen on the squats, after three their fucking knees are all over the place. They're looking around. You know, they're, they're, they're bored, you know, and so, and that's just one benefit to the dynamic work, but for a beginner or an intermediate, it's, it's, it's a 90% benefit, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. Now to somebody, I like to work with the lifters that are high intermediate to try to get them to an elite total or higher. You know, I, I like to really have to work to figure out what, what the, how to get them better. And so to me, that's more gratifying because that's tapping into every skill set that I have, you know, and I don't charge people for training. I don't do it for a living. You know, it's I'm in e-commerce. So if, if I'm going to train people, it's going to be enjoyable for me or I'm not going to do it. You know, it's just as simple as it is. Yeah. So and even with that, I've had to make modifications to what I do from what I did at Westside, the same way I'm sure if I sat down with Louie, he's not doing anything close to what he was doing when I was there. But I've had to make modifications because the the lifters that I work with, 
lifting is not their number one priority. Where when I was at Westside, everybody that was there lifting was their first priority. You know, with these lifters I work with, work is their number one priority or families. It's like their third priority. So I have to take that into account, which means most of the training has to fall over the weekends because they have more time. Well, now there's a problem because I'm sticking, you know, max effort squats on Saturday and maybe dynamic benches on Sunday. So where's the rest? You know, so now you got, you know, fatigue management as a huge component of training. So now now I got to figure that whole thing out and then what can they do during the week? And so, but understanding the basic principles of what each one of the methods are is hugely important. Everything else can be manipulated. And that's the beauty of the conjugate model is everything can be manipulated and moved according to the lifter's strengths and weaknesses. And you can even, there's been times that I've had to even move it into blocks You know, I really like to work in three-week waves for the dynamic work. And a lot of times, the whole training program ends up becoming almost a block model based upon those three weeks because, and I don't want them strong after a meet. This is one thing that differs from what Louie used to have us do. After the meet, I don't want them to have a bar on their back or in their hands for anywhere between three to six, anywhere. If it's a beginner, three weeks. If it's an advanced person, nine which means when they come back, so they can do machine work, single leg work, you know, any of that bodybuilding bullshit they want to do. Just no bars on their back, no bars in their hands. So when they come back after nine weeks, they're weak. You know, yep. they, they have fallen under, at Westside we had a 90% rule. You know, if you ever fell under 90%, 90% of your max strength, you, you something had to change. You, that was the lowest you were able to fall. That always kind of kept us in striking range of a meet within eight weeks or actually it was for a long time four weeks but then a circumax phase started to become what we used so it ended up being 10 weeks because you had to get in shape to get in shape because the circ- <laughs> yeah the circumax is a motherfucker so it's not like you can just jump into that you know you need to be conditioned and ready to go into that almost like you're conditioned and ready to go into a meet and um but i know that that's where the difference is is I know that they're going to be 20% off, so I just have to build in four to six weeks of a whole different phase before, I call it the starting line, before the starting line of when they can start training for a meet. So they can't do as many meets, you know, but the reason I do that is I, I want, your spine is everything when it comes to recovery. You yeah. know, you, it, it's everything. So when you're putting a bar on your spine, it's compressing your spine. When you're holding a bar in a batch, it's compressing the cervical spine. If I can just unload that whole entire unit for six weeks, there's I, I don't see any potential negative. I don't see being so bad that it outweighs the benefits of doing that, you know, from a recovery standpoint, being... Because with powerlifting, at the end of the day, the healthier athlete, as long as they're close in strength, the healthier athlete will always win. Always. You know, but nobody ever gets to a meet 100% healthy. So it's, it, it's how, what's the least amount of damage they can create while training with a meet? And if you can start with no damage, then you see what I'm saying? Then the damage getting to the meet is going to be less. 
Yeah, and people thinking that six weeks is a lot. Uh, it's really not when you think about this. Uh, top power lifters can be in the game for fuck 20 years. Well, here, here's another thing is I have one girl I'm working with now that it's been six or seven months. I don't know how long she's been here, but she came in and expressed and we talked, you know, usually I won't even help anybody. I'll, I'll let them train in the gym, but I won't help them for six months. You know, cause I, I don't know what their work ethic is. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot of time to kind of lay out a template for somebody and to invest in them. So just by watching them in a gym, I can see, do they work hard? Do they, you know, just things that I kind of grew up being able to pick up on, you know, to be able to tell. But with her, I, I didn't want to have to go through all that. So I just wanted to talk it all out first. Like, you know, here's what do you want to do where you see yourself in the sport? And, you know, she she wants an all time world record in the squat. And I said, OK, based upon what you do right now. That's probably going to take three years. It's going to take anywhere between five, six, maybe seven meets. It's, you know how meets go. You could be in the best shape of your life, but certain things are out of your control and it fucks up. You know, so we're looking at a three-year time. So now when I communicate with her, it, it was like, okay, we have to change your technique. It's going to take three months of just doing dynamic and technique work, no max effort work just building up the weak points to support the technique that you're going to be using, but it's going to take three months. You know, I have no objections when I do that because what's three months out of three years yeah, when that, not that's the end goal. You know, that's why Olympic uh, Olympic coaches want their athletes to train in quadrennials. Sure. Because now you can sit there and say, okay, I have six months to fix this technique, you know, and you can, you can map everything out. So, if she used to come to me and say, hey, look, I want to do this meet, and it's just some bullshit out of the blue, I can say, well, how's that going to help you with the overreaching goal here? Is yeah. this still the overreaching goal? Because it can change. You know, I mean, it's, you got to work with them. I mean, it is powerlifting. She could say, I don't want, I don't care about that anymore. But it does, it changes everything, you know, because that's, that's where I think athletes or coaches or powerlifters need to spend more time when, when I speak with the powerlifters that we sponsor, that's usually how the narrative goes, is where do, you want, where do you see yourself in three years? Because if you keep that in mind, as you lay out how your training is going to go and what meets you're going to do, you know, if, if it's an all-time world record, what meet do you want to do it in? You know, and then things are easier because that's training to me. You know, training is, it's not this, you know, for people who just go in the gym and want to get strong, yes, it's very fucking simple. But for people that want to do things that nobody's ever done before, it's a very, very fucking complex thought process and a lot of problem solving to be able to get there. And the more information that you can have and the longer duration you have to make these attributes all come together, the, the, you, increase, you significantly increase your odds. But we live in a world today where the only thing people do is hire a coach to for a 12-week training cycle before a meet. And it's like that whole 12 weeks before a meet is pretty much a little bit of peaking, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of recovery management, you know, a lot of risk management. You know, it, it's not really – there is some – 
it's not like if I had them for four months in the off season to experiment with what's the best exercise to bring up their hamstrings, triceps, squat, lockout, whatever it is. You know, it's you have room for error when it's a long term program where you start peaking somebody for me and their their lockout's not there, for example. And you're like, well, hell, maybe let's try pin presses. Well, what if they don't work? Yeah. You know, and now, what if during the off season you've already determined that pin presses suck? You know, close grip inclines are great. You know, so now it's like, okay, here here we know this works. You know, we're gonna throw that in, and that's where it's, it's a long term process. And I don't think people see it as that today, like they did years ago. Yeah, I've actually turned down people who came to me and said uh, that they want to change coach and want me to help them six or eight weeks before I meet. I tell them, you you need to stick with what you've been doing uh, and then we can talk again after the meet because even, and I mean, peaking even changes depending on the type of training you've done. Yes, and in six weeks, you don't know what their conditioned base no. is. You don't, there's so many unknowns that, Hell, you could deload them, right? Which is typically going to start about three, four weeks out. But what if they're in awful fucking shape and you don't know it? Yeah. So then you deload them and then they bomb out because they're weak as piss because they were never in shape to begin with. Yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, you just, you don't know. And I, I wish, and, you know, with the onset of the number of online coaches, which I make fun of, but there's also great benefit to that as well because people are able to, you know, gain knowledge at faster rates and so forth. But the clients need to be able to know how to make better decisions and know yes. how and to have better expectations. Like they should be seeking a coach that they're going to work with for a couple of years because a coach, if given the right opportunity in the right environment, they have to be given the ability to make mistakes. That's the only way they're going to figure out what really works for somebody. And if all you got is six to eight weeks and you make one mistake, they're gone forever. Same reason why they wanted to get rid of the coach they were working with before they called you or before Absolutely. they got a hold of you. You know, so the client needs to understand or the athlete needs to understand more so how the process works. And I'm, trust me, I'm trying my best, you know, to educate them, you know, to make better decisions because even somebody that may have a, you know, may look like the worst coach could be the best coach for an athlete, you know, and vice versa. You know, the person that looks like they could be the greatest coach in the world may be a great coach for advanced lifters, but would suck for somebody who's intermediate. Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, uh, picking the right coach at the right level. Yes. Because some, some people are really good at getting beginners better. I mean, really good, but they don't know what to do with an intermediate. And see, that's where, you know, I'll, I'll use myself an example there. I only, I mean, my whole life I've written from powerlifting perspective, I want, I've only really been around good powerlifters. So yeah. good to great powerlifters. That's, that's been since the time I was put into a gym, you know, class one or above powerlifters since, since day one. Um, if I have somebody that comes in now, now I was better at it when I was doing it every day with gem pop, but if it's somebody that comes in now and they're training for their first meet, I have to make sure I have one of the lifters that I'm working with, with me while I'm coaching them, because I 
won't see the simplest shit because I'm looking at, are they squeezing their pinky on the bench press? You know, yeah, my, my eyes are going to where the advanced person fucks up and they could go through a whole training session and their ass be three inches off the bench and I wouldn't fucking know. Um, so that's, that's why having multiple sets of eyes helps, but I, I, I never have to worry about somebody's ass being three or four inches off the, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know, so why, why would I even want to think I have to look for that? But that I'm, what I'm doing is supporting the point that you're saying is, you know, training a beginning powerlifter is a completely different skill set than training somebody that's, you know, way up in the hierarchy. And yeah. not only that, but their attitudes are completely different. It is. And it isn't just about uh, the technique either. I mean, it's uh, the physical, the, the recoverability is completely different between a really good lifter and an obese, as you alluded to earlier. Yeah, and it's, you know what, I think, I know that just from my own personal experience, because it doesn't sound like it would be that way. You know, it sounds like the, the bigger, like a Dave, like Dave Hoff should be able to just train all the time. But yeah. at the fucking lows that he, he might be able to only train squat twice a month, you know, yeah. it's just, you learn that, you know, as they get better, but hopefully by the time they get that fucking strong into that stage, and, you know, Ray Williams on the raw side, so let's, let's just make it fair comparison. You know, once they get there, you hope their technique is so dialed in that they won't have to have, they won't really need to squat as frequently, you know, to be able to perform better, you know, but that's a big part. And the thing is, at that level, too, they want to train more, yeah. you know, and so it's holding them back. Where the beginners is kind of like kicking them in the ass, you know, to get them to, to learn how to push hard because mentally they don't know how to really, they don't really understand what that means yet. No. You know, it's, and it's, 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 I love the dichotomy between the two because it's so vastly different on so many levels that, and it's almost completely opposite in all regards. You know, where everything you think the beginner should be is what the advanced lifter is and vice versa. <laughs> I mean, it's really fucked up, but it works. And the, the, the other thing is when you're working with intermediate or advanced lifters, from what I've found is you, you, I'm not anywhere near as strong as what I used to be. But when I'm in the gym and I do feel healthy, I need to do something that is really fucking hard. And that strains because it helps me to build the credibility with the people I'm working with. Even though I'll never be able to hold a bar on my back again, if I'm using a yoke bar and I'm doing max effort work and they see that I'm putting myself out there and, you know, going in and, you know, a zone to be able to do it, then when I, it's my credibility, it's easier because name alone doesn't mean a fucking thing. I learned this from Louie. When I first went to Westside, it was still Louis Simmons. It was still Westside Barbell, but he wasn't training. As soon as that fucker started training again, everything increased. And it's because now, all of a sudden, we were not, we were not looking at him like the broken down old man. It was like yeah. this, this, it changed everything. So I'm not saying that that coach needs to be a world record holder or even a top 10 lifter, but that coach needs to be training hard enough to earn the respect of those that they're actually coaching. He should walk the walk. Yes, yes. So uh, let's get into uh, the conjugate system a bit because 
people are really confused. You you basically on max effort uh, day you usually change exercise once per week, right? And you said uh, you suggest using around eight exercises to rotate from. I think a beginner needs to use fewer movements, and an advanced guy can use a different movement all year long. You know, it's what's what's going to happen is, you know, and and I've tried this several different ways. I've tried to do three week waves and two week waves with beginners. Like, okay, let's do close grip incline, for example. Week one is going to be a triple. Week two, we're going to go for the single. Well, that never seemed to work very well. And I'm like, well, fuck it, you know, because I what, what I was trying to hope to obtain from that was muscular coordination not so much neuromuscular coordination but just learning how to do the movement the first time yeah. and then the, the next week them coming back and knowing how to do it and then be able to do the single but they would forget how to do it so i'm like well fuck if that's the case we may as well just change it every week but come back to it more frequently so if it's a true beginner it may only be four movements and then it will expand out because at four movements it's going to become harder over a period of six months for them to progress in those, you know, so yes. the more, the more movements, the better, because the, the PRs are nice, right? But I think everybody gets a little too caught up in the PRs. The, the, the benefit of the max effort method is not the PR, it's the straining, right? And there's different ways that you can strain based upon the advance or the level of the lifter you're working with. An advanced lifter needs to learn how to strain and make decisions while they're doing that. Now that's a tough one, man, because usually they're in a completely different zone when they're in a meet. But if you're an advanced lifter and you've been in a meet and you hit a sticking point and shit slows down, all of a sudden you come back to reality really fucking quick. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, oh shit. Well, at that point in time, you have to be able to think and process where am I, what's going on, what do I need to do? So you need to be able to strain and think to be able to complete the lift. A beginner just needs to know how to strain through the sticking point. So they'll pull and they'll start to hit that sticking point and then just quit pushing because they think it's over. But don't realize that if they push a little bit more, it will go. Or if they push faster into it, it will go. So for beginners, I think, you know, the short, maybe four to six, rotate more frequently. I think that if there, there's, a, there's a degree of safety with each max effort exercise. So let's say it's a close, let's compare, let's keep it with the bench because most people understand that more than so than they do anything else. Um, there's a higher degree of safety doing a pin press than there is a close grip incline press. So you can see, you can let them technically fuck up a pin press a little bit more then you can let them technically fuck up a close grip bench press. Sure. So you want to pick the movements like, and those would be two that I would put in for a beginner because I want to develop that skill, right? And the incline does take the lats out of the movement, which and keeps the leg drive in. So it has benefits there from that standpoint. And so you have to, with the beginners as well, you have to, if the technique gets too fucked up, you have to stop them. They're, they're not going to max out. They're not going to go to failure. You know, their failure is going to be technical failure. But if you can find movements, I mean, if it's a true beginner, even if it's a fucking Smith machine bench press, you know, who gives a shit? You know, you're trying to teach them to strain. 
that one you can really, really push them on because they're not going to fuck up the bar path, right? No, no. Um, but they're going to learn how to strain. So you got to understand, you know, you're trying to teach them how to strain. You're trying to train the muscular system to train. You're trying to train the neuromuscular system to be able to learn how to strain and what to do. And you're trying to teach the mind to be able to strain with time and to make decisions. So with the max effort method, you can't just focus on one attribute or one benefit it brings. You have to know what all of them are. And sometimes certain exercises are going to carry more of that one attribute than another one. I don't want to try to confuse people, but so begin, let me just boil this all down. Beginners should, you know, still train to a one rep max. They should do triples for as long as they can. As soon as the triples start to feel a little hard, they should stop. They should start doing singles. And then at that point, as soon as the lift either becomes a clusterfuck or it gets really, really hard, they should stop. That's max effort work for beginners. With what you're saying with the basically making decision when straining and learning how to strain, is there a point in doing max effort exercises that perhaps have a longer bar path? Uh, yes. So it takes longer time to actually finish the lifts? Deficit deadlifts are a great example of that. Yeah. So if you're teaching somebody how to strain and think on a deadlift, if you did deficit deadlifts with bands, yeah, there's some time under tension there. You know, so yes, that, yeah. <laughs> if, if that was the attribute that I was really trying to go for through a training cycle, I would do that way more frequently than I would do pin pulls, for example. How would it change then for, let's say, an intermediate or advanced? Obviously, getting rid of uh, or uh, doing more exercises, you mentioned, but uh, would the exercise selection itself change? That there are certain exercises that are better for more advanced lifters? Yeah, but I think the, the, when I'm looking at the lifters that I work with, the first thing that goes through my mind is what can they do in the safest what is the safest max effort exercise for them to do? So if they've had back surgery, for example, I'm not going to have them do suspended good mornings. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not, there's a risk benefit ratio to all of it. So that's the first question from a needs analysis that goes out is what is the safest for them to do? And usually they're going to be dealing with nicks and bumps. So let's say it's bicepial tendonitis. Well, if that's the case, then I don't really want them squatting with a barbell, you know, because that's just going to beat up the bicep tendon even more so. If they're going to use a yoke bar or a safety bar, I want them to be conscious of where their hands are, because if they're in too much of a reverse curl position, same issue on the bicep tendon. So once I come up with that exercise that falls into, here's something really safe that they can strain on, and usually... It, it's it's a process of elimination that brings it down to like two movements. I swear to God, you know it's you know and when when that that's how I do it with the ones that I work with. And then there's also a group, right? So because the attributes are so vast for that, and max effort exercises are not really intended to bring up weak points. I may have three or four potential movements, but then when I look at the group of five not all five can do that one movement. So then that brings it down usually to one, you know, one or two. And if it is one or two, then I'll ask more of my experienced lifters, what would you rather do? Now, when I was at Westside, 
we didn't know what the fuck the max effort exercise was until we walked in the door. Then we still didn't know. I swear to God, we, I would be sitting on a flat dumbbell bench eating a fucking McDonald's breakfast sandwich. <laughs> and, you know, Rob Fuzner would walk in and Sam sitting there with Vogelpool. So Rob Fuzner walks in and we're like, dude, what do you want to do for max effort work? It's like, I don't know. What do you guys want to do? It's like, fuck, dude, you're no help at all. And then John Stafford would come in and like, what do you want to do for max effort work? Like, I don't know. What were you guys thinking? And it's like, good God, can somebody make a fucking decision here? You know? And then, I mean, this is, this is every fucking Monday. It was every max effort day. And then, lo and behold, somebody would walk in and say, look, I don't give a fuck what we do, but we're not going to do pinpulls. Like, fuck it. We're pinpulling. You know? And, um, but that's really how it was. We just knew that we weren't going to deadlift more than once every eight weeks, you know, at the most once every six weeks, and that the majority of the time it was going to be some type of good morning or a low box squat. So there were some rules like, you know, look, we did good. We, we deadlifted last week. So that's definitely out. You know, we, you know, so it's that that's really how it was. Now, I think Louis changed that. I think it's a little bit more prescribed especially for his athletes and intermediates where for us, it was like, whatever the fuck you do, you know, or we just make shit up. It's like, well, fuck, I don't know. Let's throw this put bands chains. I mean, one time I hooked up the fucking, and I did it as a joke. I hooked up the cambers, uh, the cambers squat bar with, um, reverse bands and chains. So when you walked in there, there was like three, 400 pounds of reverse bands and 400 pounds of chains. So the bar sitting in the rack was neutral, right? Yeah. But there, there's no, there was no purpose for what I just set up. Right? No, of course I, I, not. <laughs> I just did it on purpose to piss Louie off and to see if he would even notice. So he walks in and we got a plate on each side. And he's like, you, I think he looked directly at me and he says, you are a fucking idiot. You know, because he thought I was serious. You know, and it's like, nah, you know, I'm not. And, um, but that was kind of how it worked then. But for beginners, the selection, I think if you narrow the number down to four to six movements and they, you create a rule where they can't do the same one twice in a row and then you let them pick, I think that's the best way to go because what they're more excited to do, they're going to put more effort in. Yes, yes. Even though a lot, you know, a lot of training is making people do what they don't want to do. But in this one instance with the max effort method, that doesn't necessarily have to apply because the overreaching goal, you know, to strain really doesn't matter what they do. Do you have any rules on uh, how much band tension and chain and stuff like that on max effort? Of course, there are Louis suggested 25% on dynamic work, but do you have any guidelines for max effort? No, um, I don't. I'm not as into that as deep as what Louis is because I don't have my lifters. You know, I got a couple that are seasoned, but they're really beat up. Um, and my, my other lifters are still, uh, you know, under two years, you know, of training. So, I, I don't want the setup time for one thing because you yeah. know you can spend 45 minutes setting something up um, when in that period of time I can have the ab work done, the warm up done, all the other things done. 
So I really don't. I don't want it insane. Like, I don't want to do reverse band squats with weights that are out of what they're going to potentially be able to do in a meet. Like, if, if, if they're going to squat 600 in a meet, to me, there's no reason for them to ever have 800 on their back with reverse bands. It's just stupid. You know, it's, let's get them at 600, 650 maybe um, with, with the bar weight. But I, it's, it's, I, I, there's so much nonverbal that goes on in a gym that I rely on. So if it's a reverse band, I want to make sure that it's enough band tension that it helps them. It, you know, it, it helps them with the setup a little bit, but when they come out of the bottom, they, they, they know when, like I want it to almost come all the way off at the top because when they hit the bottom, I don't, that band's going to help with the, them with starting the lift. Right. But yeah. I want, I want them to know that if I don't accelerate this motherfucker really hard, like use the bands to help me go faster, I'm not going to be able to finish it. It's going to be way too hard at the top. So and then when I say the bands come off at the top on a squat, it may be a quarter of an inch, you know, at the yeah. top. So they're, they're, they're not getting 200 pounds of deload at the top. There's, there's a little bit. Um, so I kind of leave that up to them. On dynamic work with chains, I have some guidelines that I go by, um, which is roughly pretty close to what Louis, you know, says. You know, it's it's just where people screw up is there is a difference between bands and chains when it comes to percentages. Like for me personally, if I have them do a bench wave and it's going to wave between fifty and sixty percent, you know, my percents are also based upon the lifter. I'll explain that here in a minute. But if it's going to weigh between 50 and 60%, with chains, I'm not going to change the load at all because the chains completely deload at the bottom. If they're going to put bands on, I know the bands are going to be about 30 pounds on the chest. 30 pounds has to come off of the bar. You know, so that's where I think people screw up is, you know, Louie may be putting percentages out there that with bands you want to use a lower percent than with chains you're going to use. I try to make things really, 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 really fucking simple. So the way I determine how much somebody can use for dynamic work, because there's so many variables. There's what their muscle fiber type is. There's what their sporting background is. How good is their technique? How fast did they fatigue? How, what is their starting strength? You know, there's so many factors. That the first time I have them do dynamic work, I, I will have them warm up really well and start with 45 to 50 percent. And then after one set, two sets, I'm going to add 5 percent. A couple more sets, I'm going to add another 5 percent. I'm going to keep increasing the bar weight up by, you know, two or 5 percent, depending. You know, if it's a 100 pound venture, obviously it has to be lower than 5 percent. Um, but I'm going to increase the weight up over 10 or 15 sets very slow because what I want to see is when does the bar speed begin to slow down? So if the bar speed at 50% is the same as 55 and 60, but at 65, I start to see a decrease. I will never have them do speed work at 65%. So there's okay. my way from 50. So see, I'm looking for that range because I know from the work that was in super training and, you know, studies on dynamic work and everything else, people generate 
force at 50%. They can generate great force at 50 to 60%. So I'm going to start at the lowest at the 50%. And now if they go all the way to 70%, it's like, fuck, you know, now I have an option that I can weigh from 50 to 70, or I can weigh from 60 to 70, or I can do blocks here. You know, I can do one wave of 50 to 60 and a second wave of 60 to 70, you know, so I get greater variance with that. I do the same thing on the squat. So ju- just to explain this a bit to the listeners, because if you look into into books like uh, Super Training and Science and Practice of Strength Training, you will see that dynamic effort method is used to increase rate of force development. And the percentages that you're talking about here, around 50%, that's pretty much explosive strength. And when you get up a little bit higher, at up to 60 or something, you're talking speed strength, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if if you guys out there listening want to learn more about this and rate of force development and uh, stuff like that, check out, I think especially super training is, uh, has a lot on that stuff. Yeah, and it's just, it's what I'm trying to get around is, and this is going back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. And this is a great podcast, by the way. Most people like to just ask me about business shit and my history. <laughs> I thought you only wanted to talk about that these days. Yeah, I know. It's like, good God, this is this is the shit that I love, right? Um, <laughs> and I, I never get to do it. You know, I'm too busy worrying about what fucking marketing headline do we need to use for the next newsletter. But um, <laughs> this, when when you know that pretty much everybody should be able to generate maximum force at fifty percent, and oh, I'm sorry, going back to what I was saying. With, with so many different versions of conjugate training, and then you have people that are trying to set themselves apart from somebody else. It's like, hey, I don't want to sound like Louie, even though that's where you fucking learned it from. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a little bit different in that regard because I don't charge for this shit that I put out. I'm more than happy to say Louie taught me more than everybody else, bottom line. If it wasn't for Louie, Elite FTS would not exist. I have no problem saying that. I know where I come from. And, um, but people do try to set themselves apart, and I know why they're trying to do it. So percentages change, so, you know, and people are like, well, Louis says you should use 62% where I'm reading yeah. this manual, you need to use 67. And then I just read this one article where they said it needs to be 70. What need, so it's, that's where it's like, you know what, fuck, figure it out yourself. It's very easy. You know, it takes one training session and one set of eyes. It's it's very easy to see when your barbell decreases. The only thing that you got to be careful for is if they're really out of shape, is it decreasing because of fatigue or is it decreasing because of the actual rate of force development? And exactly. that, that's a tricky one, right? But, and you should still be able to figure it out pretty damn close. And if you take a beginner, 50% is so ridiculously light. You can tell from the first set, this is stupid. Yes. You know, so, because they don't have the neuromuscular coordination. They don't have this, the, the muscular, they don't have any coordination. So they don't know how to bench for shit. And then they don't know how to synchronize, you know, the movement for shit. So you might have a beginner that needs to use a wave from 80 to 90%, as crazy as that sounds. But their bench sucks so bad that it does, the, this, their one rep max, and this is the other thing dealing with percentages, Percentages can be very deceiving based upon somebody's skill, you know, their skill set, especially with athletes. Um, when I did train Gen Pop, 
I remember I was training a collegiate soccer player. So you're dealing with a Division One collegiate soccer player. So you're, you're scholarship. So you're dealing with a, a high-end athlete. You're dealing with an elite athlete. And, you know, I had her work up on a squat to a max on a box. And with, uh, you know, I, I use a one count, 1,001 stand-up with a one count. And she worked up to, it wasn't great. It was kind of pathetic. She worked up to like 150 pounds, which yeah. it was okay for her, right? So I'm okay. Then just for some reason, I'm like, I wonder how many reps she could do with 80%. Yeah, so I loaded 80% on the bar, which is, you know, eighth and fives and 40. It's so like 120. She did 42 reps. <laughs> Holy shit. So then the first question that goes to my mind is, okay, I squat 900. Yeah. You know, if I put all my shit on, could I do 720 for 40? And I'm like, I don't think I could do that for fucking four. No, and just uh, looking at, the, at it from the other way as well. I mean, imagine if you put her numbers into a rep calculator that people use, then she would have a max squat of like 500. Yeah. Now, here's the thing is, you know, over the next three months working with me, she squatted 300 pounds. So, though, and she, no, she did not get 150 pounds stronger. I was just able to have her display the strength that she currently had. She yes. didn't have the muscular coordination or the neuromuscular score, or to make it simple, she didn't have the skill to be able to squat efficiently. So once I got her to the 300, then yes, of course, the percentages had to change. But that's where percentages can be so deceiving because 10% of 100 pounds is 10 pounds. But that can be a Now, 10% of a thousand, it's a hundred fucking pounds. Yeah. So a lot of times you'll see these big dudes in a gym training with the, you know, with their girlfriends or whatever it is and be like, oh, she smoked that, throw a dime on. And you're like, and then she misses, she gets stapled. And it's yeah. like a 15% jump. So then I'll tell the guy, do you realize that would be equivalent to you throwing 120 pounds on your next attempt? You know, percent wise, you know, yeah. so percent exactly there has to be some critical thinking when you're dealing with percents percentages don't work really well with uh very light weights or very heavy ones in my opinion no they i think the percentages work well for the dynamic effort method because there is a there is there's such a large degree of variance so i mean you can be fast with 50 percent. you can probably be fast with 70 percent. so if you're five percent off here or there not that big of a deal. When, now, when you're dealing with submaximal training, you know, the progressive overload or even block type of training, that becomes a little bit more critical because you got guys training at 82%, 86%, and that, that becomes a big fundamental challenge because are they really that strong that day and that time? And then, yeah. you know, how do you pivot from that to be a – so you need – it, it, you definitely can train that way. We all know that. People yeah. make great gains and they still do today. But when you start doing a little bit deeper dive into the people that train that way, you will see they, they back it down certain days. As they're warming up, they realize it's not here today. And on other days, they might bump it up a little bit. So they are accommodating for the deficit, pro or con, 
of what they feel their percentage of, you know, their competitive max is, you know, at that time. I have a question again about speed work, actually, um, now that we were talking about it. Uh, there are different types of speed work. I mean, uh, you can see videos uh, from Westside at YouTube where you basically bounce the bar on the chest, it looks like. So you're training a lot of reversal speed as well, or reversal strength, I would say. Uh, but then you have the people like Shaco, he told me to pause it while doing speed work. And then you have a third one, which is uh, CAT, com Compensatory Acceleration Training, which came from Fred Hatfield, who I believe passed away recently, so may he rest in peace. Uh, do you have any opinion on these different type? There's a fourth, too, that we used to do, which was either a soft touch or actually stopping a half inch away from your chest, where a soft touch would be you just you just bringing the bar down, you just barely touch your shirt and press back up. So the soft touch and not touching are pretty much the same thing. Not touching sucks. Yes, and that's a great way to build starting strength. You know, so because it, it is a dead stop, you know, the bar doesn't transfer into your body to get, you know, any type of reversal strength. You know, from that, the, um, the stretch reflex is almost nullified to a degree yeah. um but i see i see those as four different potential dynamic training cycles so based upon the lifter like i have a, a beginner that just did her first beat and her biggest problem on her bench she almost bombed out the commands so guess what her dynamic work is going to be for the next six weeks She's yeah. going to be pausing on her chest, and she's also going to have a start command. You yeah. know, so her dynamic work is going to be start, press, start, press, because we have to teach her to do that. I mean, there's a lot of, and that's my, right there, going back to what we talked about before, working with beginners, never fucking dawned on me that I had to teach her how to actually bench into me. Right. She should know that already. Yeah. But she's a beginner. Exactly. But in your head. Yeah, yes, exactly. I'm like, oh, shit. I mean, as soon as I saw the video, you know, they sent me the video. I'm like, oh, son of a bitch. This is all on me. You know, so I'm telling her this is not your fault. This is my fault. I should have known better. And, you know, I, that, that's just a coaching belief that I have. It's never the athlete's fault if you're working with them. It's always, always the coach. Always. Um, yeah, you're going to take responsibility. I mean, unfortunately, you can't take responsibility for their success but you certainly can for everything they fuck up. But if, if I have a lifter that is uh, weak off of their chest, I really don't like to use dynamic work to build up a sticking point, but this is a rare case to where it could help to have them, you know, short stop or do a soft press to be able to teach them how to accelerate off of their chest. You know, the, um, I do like the pause because, I mean, most lifting today, 99% of it is all raw. So I like the pause for dynamic work a lot of times now because lifters, if they, they, if they go to a meet and that bar keeps sinking in, they're not going to get a press command. No. So if all they're used to doing is touch and go, touch and go, touch and go, or something really ballistic where it hits their chest, it goes in a half inch and they flex out, they're going to have a really hard time you know, with starting strength, 
you know, now if you get somebody who they just don't exhibit the explosive force you're looking for on the bench, I will most definitely have them ballistically bench. So almost put them on a timer. Like, like your last set took you, you know, 2.3 seconds. This needs to be faster. You know, yeah. you got to beat that. So it's, I don't really see them as being one better than the other. I see them as being which one can you put in for which purpose. You know, that's, that's the beauty of conjugate. So, and I don't think that Louis is dead set on everybody ballistically benching. Now, I will step back and say if it's an athlete that's not a power lifter, he might be. Because I can see more dynamic correspondence to that than I could the other. All these exercises you mentioned here, some of them might not be very uh, applicable for max effort. I mean, you probably don't want to stop just above your chest for max effort, right? Oh, no, none of this. No, 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 no. Max effort's max effort. Max effort should be done, as I said, for me, rule number one is what is the safest route possible to the yeah. highest degree of success. That can be confusing to people. You don't necessarily use the same exercises for dynamic efforts uh, as you do for max effort. They are independent of each other. I try to avoid it at all costs because I don't want repetitive movement patterns. I am, I've had both hips, I mean, I'm a wreck. I've had both hips replaced. You know, other things are going to need to be replaced. A lot of that is genetic. You know, people will argue with me on that one, but my parents have had six total replacements. Um, so there is that. The other factor is I've weighed over 240 pounds since I was 16 years old and I'm 50 now. So that's the hips. But in training is definitely a factor. It factors in there. You know, but my orthopedic said it's the third factor. The other two are probably bigger, but they all are accumulative and responsible. But the more you can vary a movement pattern, the less stress that's going to be on a joint. So you know the competitive lifts or something very close to the competitive lifts are going to be the dynamic work for most people. You know, so it's either going to be a box squat or a free squat, you know, for the dynamic. Sometimes it might be specialty bars. It can change a little bit dynamically there. And even on the bench, bars can change a little bit too. So there, there is that, but... That's more the skilled training for powerlifting, right? Yes, and that's after they've already developed a very, very good technical foundation because the dynamic day to me is really a it's just as much of a technical day as it is to create force development yeah. because there's there's more first reps that can be obtained in that day than any other day but so if that is bench press i don't want them doing flat bench press on max effort work now they can do a board press floor press you know a variance of that but not the same thing the closest I'll let them get would be a chain press where you work up to 50-60% of your training max and then start adding chains per side. You know, it's, I also use with programming and, and with the lifters I work with, I also teach them to distinguish between a training max and a competitive max because it should be different and then what I call a perceived max. So I do use submaximal training, especially in the off season. So I will have them do fives and so forth. And we know that fives are usually optimal somewhere between 80 to 85%. Well, yep. you can't go off a competitive max 
if you're 12 weeks out from a meet. You really can't go on a training max because they have no idea what it is because you do times you get trained. So I use what's called a perceived max. So I let them work up. And if it's a skilled lifter or somebody that's been training for a while, let's say they have a 500 pound squat. By the time they get to 275, they kind of know in their head, there's no way in fucking hell I can squat 500 today. Maybe at best 440. Like, fuck right. it. You don't have to go to 440. You just knew at 275, 440. Take 80% of that 440. So the 440 becomes the perceived max. Take 80% of that, do five reps. And that's something you talked a lot about that I, I think a lot of people miss out on. Uh, the auto-regulation of training. How you make decisions as you go into the gym, as you warm up and all this stuff. Yeah, I think, I think the perceived max is critical if you're going to be working on any type of triples or fives. Because what's your alternative? A competitive max, which you know is bullshit. All right. Yeah. Or you could take 10% less than that, which is, it's a decent, easy way to do it, but it's still not true. Or you can teach them how to listen to their own body to come up with a perceived max because that will have correspondence to the meat. Because yeah. let's say they do a second attempt and you're like, fuck, that looked easy. You know, you think they go, at some point you're going to ask your lifter, you know, how did that feel? And if they've been working off perceived maxes, they're going to say, I got 20 more. Yeah, then they know. Yeah, because they've been practicing it without even knowing it. Well, we'll stop there for now. I talked to Dave for hours, so there will be another podcast with Dave uh, coming up shortly. So please subscribe, and uh, I'll see you soon. Ciao.